Dan. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we pause to acknowledge your greatness this morning. All your promises in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. Everyone will be perfectly fulfilled. You have spoken them, they will be done. You have commanded, they will come to pass. Lord, how often we doubt You. How often we live as if there is no God. We ask that You forgive us. And that You multiply Your faith in our hearts. Teach us to be resigned to Your will. To delight in Your law. To have no will but Thine. To believe everything You do is for our good. Help us to leave our concerns in Your hands. To make Your trust abound in our souls. Lord, we pray, we plead with You. And that You might display Your glory in us and through us. That we might be Your people, magnifying Your greatness. And we ask that You would speak to us and that You would conform us to the image of Christ Jesus, Thy precious Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Psalm 19. We continue this journey. We've been talking lately about life in this broken world, about the challenges that we face, that we encounter, and how we are to navigate these things. I've been spending a lot of time in the Psalms over the last few months. Maybe you have too. We've all experienced some difficult things in life. You know, life can take us and beat us up one side and down the other, the old saying used to go. You feel beat up, you feel bruised, you feel forsaken. David dealt with a lot of these kind of things. Those who penned the Psalms seem to be well acquainted with the emotional difficulties, the challenges that this life affords us. We feel this way. Sometimes it takes a toll on us spiritually. You need to know that these sermons, these messages have been uh, in the works for some time, that they are not Uh, reactionary. It doesn't work that way. It seems to work the other way, that God plans. I wonder why He's putting something in my heart, why He's preparing me uh, in one direction, and then He begins to affirm that, and He's done that with the Psalms. In recent weeks, even months, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who have talked to me about being spiritually dry or um, empty, you know, not vibrant like they want to be. And I would suggest that this is not abnormal. It is not God's plan for us in Christ, but it is not abnormal for us even in Christ to walk through this world, this broken world, being beat up by life in general and not experience 
some of this dryness, some of this wilderness wanderings, if you will. If I were to be honest with you this morning, thinking about the events of the past 18 months, I would have to confess to you that uh, spiritual dryness has been clawing and scratching at my heart, trying to get a firm hold for many months now. And some days it's successful. But most days, God has begun to teach me, show me how to stay the course even when it feels barren, even when it feels like you're wandering in the wilderness. We all know some days it's just hard to press forward. Some days it's hard to get out of the bed in the morning. Some Sundays it's hard to come to church because of this dryness or this distance that you may be sensing in your walk with God. As I said, I've come to believe that this is common to believers. At times we've all been prisoner of this spiritual dryness. I've learned some helpful ways to respond when this occurs. I've learned some effective ways to nurture spiritual vitality And this text this morning is a good place for us to start. It points to the spiritual mountaintop where Yahweh dwells, lifting our eyes, which lifts our countenance upward toward Him. Our expectations are elevated. And it offers us the sweet path that cultivates renewal. So there are basically two things I want to talk to you about this morning. The first is that God alone deserves our affections and admiration. God alone deserves our affections and admiration. He has designed and equipped all creation, he says, to magnify His name. We've talked a lot about that this year, haven't we? Glorifying God, that He has made all things to glorify, to elevate and exalt, esteem who He is. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. It all displays God's incredible greatness and value. Very easy for us in this world to allow our eyes to settle on things that are merely created things, things that have been fashioned and made in this world, and to put extensive value on these things, even to the point of ignoring or missing the value of the Creator Himself. All these things do is display the incredible greatness and value of God. Heavens here is plural. It suggests an abundant variety and an extensive reach. You can't find those boundaries. Space stretches out beyond our ability to comprehend. We simply can't grasp how vast and big it all is. And scientists tell us now that it's ever-expanding, that it continues to expand. Now, this is nothing new. God told us that first. Isaiah 42, 5 says, Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens, and stretched them out, stretched them out. It has this idea, this implication of ongoing stretching out, that it's still being unfurled. 
Isaiah 44, 24, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens. Isaiah 45, 12, it was my hands that stretched out the heavens. In case you thought that he made a mistake the first time he said it, he says it on multiple occasions. That God has stretched it out. He has set it in motion and it is ever expanding. David is telling us God's story. Presenting to us his saga. It's focused on him. Exalting, esteeming his majestic name. How does he do this? The heavens are declaring. All creation is declaring the glory of of God. Each day pours forth God's greatness. Each night adds more and more to the refrain, revealing knowledge, he says. These stories go forth unabated across all creation throughout every place. That old... Um, intro to the series Star Trek. What does it say? To go where no man has ever gone. Well, that may be true, but the glory of God has long gone forth before any man might think that he would go there. Creation is not worshipped, but the Creator who made it all is to be worshipped. You know, we were talking about the bigness, and this continues to fascinate me. I know we circle back to it from time to time. But a light year, a light year, how the, in a year, how far will light travel? A light year is six trillion miles. Six trillion miles. Now try to get your mind around that. That's one of those unattainable figures, isn't it? Six trillion years, light, uh, six trillion miles, a light beam can travel in a year. That's a light year. And scientists now tell us that the universe, from boundary to boundary, if you were to cut across the midsection, the diameter is the equivalent of 93 billion light years. Now, for you mathematicians... 93 billion times 6 trillion. That's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of miles. And it's still expanding. And Yahweh spoke it into being. And He sustains it, the Scripture says, with His Word. It's not by chance. It didn't just explode out of nothing not with all this organization and all this preciseness that keeps planets exactly where they need to be in their orbit, lest they be extinguished, lest they become super cold. God placed them there and He sustains them there. For those who think that we're going to destroy this planet by car emissions... Don't hold God in very high esteem. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be good managers of creation, right? That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying maybe our worries could be spent somewhere else with better results. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. 
He wrote this. He said, He who would guess at divine sublimity should gaze upward into the starry vault. He who would imagine infinity must peer into the boundless expanse. He who desires to see divine wisdom should consider the balancing of the orbs. He who would know divine fidelity must mark the regularity of the planetary motions. And he who would detain some conceptions of divine power, greatness, and majesty must estate, estimate the forces of attractions, the multitudes of the fixed stars, and the brightness of a whole celestial train. It is not merely glory that the heavens declare, but the glory of God. For they deliver to us such unanswerable arguments for a conscious, intelligent, planning, controlling, and presiding creator that no unprejudiced person can remain unconvinced by them. The testimony given by the heavens is no mere hint, but a plain, unmistakable declaration. And it is a declaration of the most constant and abiding kind. God's glory. Each day and night add their own stanzas to the refrain. Like Niagara River pouring over the falls area there, dropping 160 feet, it is relentless, David says, the declaration of God's glory. Scripture tells us repeatedly about creation exalting God's glory. Psalm 114 says, When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language. Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint into a spring of water. The imagery here in the first paragraph of David's Psalm 19 is incredible. He talks about the sun having a tabernacle, having a dwelling place, a canopy, and it comes out like a bridegroom exiting his chamber, all beaming and glad because of what awaits him. He comes forth with gladness, with brilliance, and the stars are his attendants. This glory goes forth to the furthest boundaries of all creation. He's portraying God in all of his beauty and glory. And we are most vulnerable when we lose sight of God's greatness. Let me say that again. We are most vulnerable when we lose sight of God's greatness. When our eyes drop, when our hearts and spirits drop from focusing on God in all His glory and greatness, and we become enamored with the things around us, whether they be problematic or whether they be perceived blessing, we lose sight of the One who is Creator of all things, and we become distracted with all the mundane things. And then we are set up for sin and temptation to move in. We are set up for putting ourselves in control of life and depending upon ourselves to try to fix that which is wrong. We set ourselves up 
for the dryness of spirit. We stop looking to God with faith and desire. Indifference becomes the spiritual marrow of our being. We must refocus our attentions on God's beauty and grandeur and value. Several years ago, I was on a trip to uh, Israel. Mark was on that trip, and he may remember what I'm about to share with you. But uh, we stayed along the Sea of Galilee one night in uh, a little cabins. We had little cabins there, and there was a terrific storm came through. The wind howled, and I thought the cabin was going to blow away. We were scheduled the next morning to take uh, a trip, a boat trip, across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. I got up the next morning. The wind was still blowing. The water was, I mean, it was out of control. I thought, we're not getting on a boat this morning. But, you know, after breakfast, things began to settle down a little bit. And it turned into just a mild breeze, and the water was still dingy, and there was still uh, fog and drab gray clouds and all those things. It just wasn't a, a sightseer's uh, um, paradise at all. It was kind of a gray, dull morning. And we got on those boats, and we started across. Just kind of mundane. Suddenly something caught my eye. And I remember looking and following whatever glimpse had caught my eye. And in the distance to the north, over my right shoulder, suspended there, above all of this stuff, was the peak of Mount Hermon. And it was just catching the morning rays of the sun above the clouds. And it was, it was literally a glow. And I thought in that moment, I couldn't take my eyes off of it. All the things that were going on down here didn't matter anymore. The beauty and the glory of that moment attracted my fixation like nothing else could. And I just sat and looked at it and looked at it and looked at it, trying to soak it in until we moved on to where it was out of sight again. And I think this is what David is saying about the Lord. It's easy for us to be drawn in to the mundane things, to the broken things of this world, to all that's around us, to all the problems, and we become dry, we become brittle, we become hardened, even calloused by the things that are happening. Why doesn't it work this way? Why doesn't it happen this way? I could make a better solution to the problem. And he's saying we need to take our eyes off of these things and set our eyes, our compass, our focus on this majestic God who changes the discussion, who changes everything. Look to the great peaks that reflect God's immense beauty and glory. Like that old hymn, Soul, when you're weary and troubled, and there's no light in the darkness to see. There's light for a look at the Savior and the more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look in His wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So we are to be reminded that God alone is worthy of our admiration. And secondly, I want you to know that God alone restores and refreshes the soul. 
Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. Now, there's a world of meaning in this phrase. The law of the Lord is perfect. Now, he's not talking just about the Mosaic law here. He's not talking about just the commandments. He's talking about the whole revelation of God, the entire doctrine of who God is, of who God is. Everything that God has revealed to us about Himself is in play here. It's all perfect. That is, it is complete. It lacks nothing. It lacks nothing. You know how frustrating it is when something lacks something? A few weeks ago, my middle daughter, who was home for a while... She took my mother down to the hospital where my dad was, and they spent the day down there. And when they started to come back, she had a flat tire on her car. One of these little small Hondas, they called it fit, but it was really unfit that day. And she called me and she said, you know, the lugs on those wheels, there's one that requires a key. Requires a special adaptation to fit in order to loosen it. I've got them all off but the one on each wheel. And the car doesn't have the key. It was a used car. She was missing something very important. No way to change the tire without it. When you're missing something, when you're missing something, you've got nothing but hopelessness. Nothing but a dead end to look forward to. But David says the law of the Lord, all that we know about, all that God reveals about Himself to us is perfect and nothing is lacking. When you lack anything, it's because you're looking in the wrong place. We look to the law of God, to all we have been taught, all that's shared with us about Him. It is perfect and complete. It revives the soul. Converting the soul. There's a twofold meaning here. Reviving the soul as in bringing it back to life. Animating that which was dead. Converting the soul. Only through the Word of God. Right? Romans tells us that you can't, a person can't be saved except for the coming of the Word of God, the pro- proclamation of the Word of God. That this is where transformation takes place. Reviving the soul. William Plumer says that not every restoration is a conversion, but every conversion is a restoration. So I think that he's also talking here not only about conversion but he's talking about restoration in the sense of when we are dry in the wilderness that the word of God is the pathway back to vibrancy it's back to the streams of water it's it's to open up the root system to absorb the water of life that God supplies to bring vibrancy and fruitfulness Indeed, 2 Timothy 
3, 12 through 17 tells us all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continuing what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. Why? Because the Word of God is complete and perfect. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It always stands against sin and wickedness, and it makes wise that which is immature and vulnerable. Things hidden from the wise are made plain to the humble, to the faithful. The precepts of the Lord... Many often chafe against the righteous direction from God. We live in a world, in a culture of independence, of self-sufficiency, of not wanting to be told what to do and when to do it. We all chafe under those kind of instructions, don't we? Because we are rebels at heart. We desire to pursue our own wants and pleasures. But God's precepts seem to to them to be punitive and harsh. But His ways are always righteous. His ways are always righteous and good. And they rejoice or make glad the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. No false mixture here of impurity or sin. It's not tainted. I was at my mom's house the other day, and we were getting ready to prepare dinner, and we were trying to help out Karen and I in the kitchen, and my mom said, I've got some meat in there in the refrigerator. Get that out, and let's cook that up. And there were two packages, and one package looked very suspicious. You know, kind of discolored. Karen looked at the date and said, hmm, that's about a week old. Mom said, oh, it's fine. (laughs) I've had enough food poisoning in my time. I said, no, it's not fine. If it's close, it's not fine. It's close, it's not fine. If it's tainted with anything, I'm not taking the chance. I don't care how long you cook it. The commandment of the Lord... It's not problematic in this way. It is always pure. Always pure. Sacred. Fear of the Lord, he says. This is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Fear of the Lord. It is wisdom. Rules of the Lord. You see the common theme here. The common theme working through. It is God's wisdom. God's word. God's commandments, God's precepts. This is where we go. When you're in that place of 
wandering in the wilderness, in that place of spiritual dryness, what do we do? You know what we usually do? We say, you know what, I'm going to go... I'm going to go to the movie. I need, a, I need something to kind of cheer me up. I'm going to go do this. I'm going to watch my favorite program, or I'm going to go read this book, or I'm going to do that. And at the bottom of the list is the Word of God, isn't it? And yet, God says this is where, this is where vibrancy lies for us. So what is spiritual dryness? It usually means that someone feels distant from God or that they're struggling to grow spiritually or they do not see God working. Life's burdens press heavily in on them and they feel discouraged. They feel despondent. They feel disappointed. They search for God in a dry and parched land where there is no water. So how does a true believer become spiritually dry? If you're a true believer, how do you become spiritually dry? How do you lose spiritual health? Let's think about your physical health for just a moment. That may help us just a little bit. How do you lose your physical health? Poor diet? Poor sleep and rest patterns? Poor exercise practices? Poor environment? Little fresh air or sunshine, stale surroundings. All these things contribute to losing our health, do they not? Does it stand to reason that spiritually the same thing can happen? That we can be engaged in a poor spiritual diet, poor spiritual exercise, poor spiritual environment? that these things can cause us to drift into a place where we are spiritually dry. To be more specific, the Word of God tells us that personal sin is one way that we end up in a place of spiritual dryness. Attempting to live for self rather than living for God. Unconfessed sin robs us of the joy of salvation. Remember David in Psalm 51? Well, after his confrontation, you know, after the sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, and David was wallowing in sin when Nathan the prophet came and confronted him and said, You are the man. You have a problem. And David was broken. And he wrote that great psalm, Psalm 51, which was a prayer of repentance. Remember what he said at the end of it? He said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Sin robs us of joy. It's a poor diet. Psalm 66, 18 said, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard my prayer. If I regard, if I cherish iniquity, if I make a special place, a hallowed place, an idol out of sin in my life, the Lord will not hear my voice. He will not hear me until I shatter the idol and turn to Him and Him only. What about physical, mental, or emotional pain that hurts and distracts us from God? Is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. Remember Elijah's despondency after the scene on Mount Carmel? 
He called down fire and God brought fire and swallowed up the sacrifice and the altar and the prophets of Baal were executed and he thought we're going to have liberation and revival in the land. Ahab and Jezebel's days are over. And when he got back down to the palace, all he found was a wanted poster with his picture on it. And he was so despondent. And the scripture says he just kept on running. And he ran and ran and ran all the way into the southern part of Israel. Out into the wilderness. He was physically, mentally, emotionally exhausted and wanted to die. God showed up and said, Elijah, why are you out here? I'm the only one that trusts in you. I'm the only one that believes in you. Here's the evidence. You performed this incredible thing on Mount Carmel, and there's no repentance in the land. God said, Elijah, Elijah, Elijah. He was destitute, distanced from God. Because he was emotionally, mentally, and physically spent. What about events or experiences? Can they lead you into spiritual dryness? Yes. Lose your job. Go through a seemingly endless battle with COVID virus. Can it lead to discouragement and despair? Absolutely. Can it encourage us into a place of spiritual dryness? Yes. Lose a loved one. Things that give us security when they're lost. Our bank accounts, our house burns down. You lose a loved one. Those things can be a catalyst to lead us towards spiritual dryness. Our eyes come down from the lofty peaks of God's glory and focus on the hurts and the pain and the suffering and the difficulty in this present existence. Indifference towards spiritual disciplines. We allow things and people other than God to become our priority. We lose that desperation for God's fellowship. Mm. Mm. Did you know that that should characterize a Christian? David said... (laughs) My heart pants for you like a deer for water. When's the last time you remember your heart panting for fellowship with God like a deer panting for water? I have to be honest with you. Over the past 18 months, God, I believe with everything in me that God is sovereign over every molecule and all creation every day. He never takes a day off. So to reconcile all that has gone on in the last 18 months with God's sovereignty is sometimes bitter to the taste, isn't it? Because we, we don't want to think, you mean God authored, God allowed, God brought these things to bear? Why would He do such a thing? And then we get our eyes down and start thinking of it through our own lens, right? But God has shown me, He said, you know, Jerry, the one thing that's happened, 
And this is just the one thing, and it's very isolated coming from one perspective. But over the last 18 months, there have been a lot more days in my life, a lot more moment by moments in my life where I found myself on my face desperate for God. Now, I'm not willing to say to you this morning that my sanctification was the reason for all that's gone on. Okay, I'm not willing to take, fall on that sword this morning. But it's been a byproduct of what God has been doing in my life over the last 18 months. Because every day I begin to realize these things, these issues, what's going on, all this is much bigger than I've got any answer for, any strength for. God, I can't take another step. If you don't give me the strength and the energy, I can't do this. If you don't work in my heart and my mind, I have no wisdom. I have no instruction. I have no guidance. You might say that all these things bring us to the end of ourselves. And that's a good place to be. But they can lead to spiritual dryness if we don't come to the end of ourselves. Sometimes God intends to humble us, break us, restore us, and strengthen us. And He uses these things to do that. Chuck Lawless, professor at Southern Seminary, wrote this little, <clears throat> well, it's, it's more than a statement, but it's not an article. He said, ten signs you might be in, in a spiritual rut. I just want to share them with you this morning quickly as we wrap up. Number one, word, God's word is only a check the box perfunctory reading. Reading God's word is only a check the box perfunctory reading. You do it because you're supposed to, not because you want to. Number two, you pray, but your prayer is brief and repetitive. It's lost any real sense of relationship between you and God. Three, you can't readily talk about what God's been teaching you lately. That's because you haven't been in the best spiritual condition to learn from Him. Number four, you feel spiritually tired. I don't know how else to describe it. You just feel blah about your spiritual walk. Hmm. Number five, you've not shared the gospel with anyone for a long time. That happens when we're in a rut. Our attention to evangelism gets diverted. Number six, you go to church but with no sense of excitement or anticipation. You're still faithful Sunday after Sunday, and you might even serve each week, but you have no expectation that worship will move your heart. Seven, you're less sensitive to the Spirit's conviction when you're under temptation. It used to be that you turned to God and fled temptation quickly. You still fight temptation today, but with less zeal. Eight, all your testimony... All of your testimony relates to what God has done in the past with no present tense stories of God's work in your life now. All the high points of your spiritual growth have been in your yesterdays. Today is just routine. Nine, you find yourself less interested in hanging out with other believers. Fellowship has become routine, so it doesn't motivate you to join with others. And ten, your spiritual walk is on autopilot. You do what you're expected to do as a Christian, and you're just going through the motions. So, how do true believers escape spiritual ruts? How do we get back on track? 
Well, first you have to admit that God's not your problem. You have to admit that God's not your problem. Too often when we're in that spiritually dry thing, we, we want to put all the blame on God. We put the blame on somewhere else. The problem's not somewhere else. The problem's not God. The problem is in the mirror. Hello? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm officially preaching now. There you go, Kyle. Let me hear it. The problem is in the mirror. And it doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, how long you've been at it. I don't care if you've been a member of this church for 127 years. You can be old and dry. Admit to God He is not your problem. He is your help and your salvation. If He can create, manage, and proclaim His glories throughout creation, I think He can manage your heart and soul just fine. He can handle your problems. Believe that and trust that. Look to God for provision, for restoration, for renewal through His Word. Repent of sin and turn again to the Holy One. David said, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit you could pray that prayer turn to his word it's a complete lacking nothing to revive the soul it is complete and perfect read and meditate and memorize his word not just reading to be reading but reading with a heart that's a whiteboard that's been made clean to say, Lord, you write on me, write in my soul, carve an etch in me, whatever you want. No preconceived ideas or thoughts. Search and ask God to renew you through it. Make it interactive. Write it down. You know, you can tell yourself and convince yourself of anything with mere words that you say. When you're praying, you can pray the best prayers and never hear them yourself. But when you write down your prayers to God, you are confronted with the written word. You're confronted. You can't change it. Open up your heart and be honest with Him and write down everything. You'll be amazed at what God might do with that. Years ago when I was a boy, I used to tell you a lot. I haven't done this in a long time, but one of my favorite things was what they call sourwood honey. Sourwood honey. It's as clear as Cairo syrup, and it's better than anything you've ever put in your mouth. And there was a lot of it that was available to us where I lived and grew up. And I remember this fellow brought some to my grandparents and my dad's house one time, and he, it was still on the racks. He had robbed the bees and just brought the racks. And we sat and cut it off ourselves and put it in these five-gallon tins. 
It's the most amazing thing. I haven't seen that done in years. And I remember watching my dad and my uncles and my granddad. They were sitting around in chairs and they had all this working stuff, honey, and they were working it up. They were cutting that honey, those combs, out of the racks and putting it in these things and cutting it up and putting it in jars. And I'd watch my dad and he would, he would cut off honey and put it in there and he would work like that for a few minutes and all of a sudden I'd see him take one and shove it in his mouth. And like any young boy, I said, hey, can I have one? And he said, okay. And so he shoved it in my mouth. It's the best stuff I ever tasted. It makes you forget all the other things that you've had, right? And so I don't know how long this went on. For me, it seemed like all afternoon. Eating that honey. And I mean, it was just flowing. It was flowing like water, a stream coming out. It was just flowing out of those racks and coming. It was a honey mecca. You've had honey. You know it's good. But what does David say? David makes a point here. He says what? Your word is sweeter, is better than honey. It flows, it gushes, and it's better. Better than honey. Better than the best thing you can put in your mouth. Feast on the word of God. It is the path to refreshing, to reviving the soul. God's Word brings conviction, regeneration, repentance. God's Word nourishes the Spirit. God's Word is so good, better than anything else you'll ever taste. That's His point. That's His point. Spiritually dry? Listen. Spiritually dry happens to every Christian at some point in time. Spiritually dry is the enemy's attempt to get you to shut down, to stay where you are. Spiritually dry is not the problem. The problem is your willingness to stay spiritually dry. If you're willing to stay there, that's on you. That's not on the broken world we're living in. Because God says, get your eyes up to me. Cast your eyes up to me. Your admiration and your affections belong to me. And then get in my word, and I'm going to show you the path to vibrancy and renewal. Being spiritually dry is not the problem. Staying spiritually dry is the problem. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word this morning, to hear you speak. We pray that, Lord, that you have found our hearts eager and ready to receive, and that, Lord, indeed, you might convince us in this moment that your word is better than anything else we can ever fill ourselves with, our hearts, our souls with. I pray, Lord, for those here this morning that may be going through a time of dryness, and I pray that your word, again, will draw them unto yourself, that they will recognize your spirit tugging and pulling them and saying, here's the problem, here's the issue, cast this away, turn your back on this, repent of this, and turn to me. Focus on me, get in my word, and I, I will restore the joy of your salvation. Oh Lord, make it so we pray this morning. Make it so we pray for your honor and for your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.